Welcome to Mind Love, episode 106. Today's episode is all about how to argue with love and have productive disagreements. Arguments aren't about specific statements. They're about worldviews, and worldviews last a long time in people. You can get someone to say that they are wrong, but you can't get them to really change their mind. Um, therefore, you know, it's going to continue to pop up. A lot of the early questions that sort of caused conflict in America have continued to pop up over and over again. We, that racism is over. Well, actually, it turns out it's not. You know, we think that you know, sexism is over. It turns out it's not. There's just more and more of the same problem coming back again. So we should just get seated and sort of expect it to return and sort of think about how we maintain our society and our relationships in the context where we're always going to have differences. We're always going to be seeing things from different perspectives. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hi, friends and wild people. First off, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please hit the subscribe button. More subscribers means even better guests and tons more value. Plus, it helps me grow the show so more people can find it. And if you ask me, everyone could use a little more mind love. Hello, friends and wild minds. It is almost Thanksgiving, which is definitely top five of my favorite holidays. I learned a while ago that if you say top five of your favorite holidays, you don't actually have to pick one. And I really love all of them. They remind us to celebrate, celebrate life and each other. Last year on Thanksgiving, tensions rose to say the least. It was a great day, but then the last hour just kind of blew up. I'll spare you the deets because I have no desire to relive the madness. Thankfully, we all resolved it first thing in the morning and just chalked it up to stress and wine. Wine and stress. (laughs) But it was interesting because over the next week, I asked a handful of people how their Thanksgiving was, and almost all of them experienced something similar. A whole lot of tension with their families. My first thought was to blame Mercury retrograde, obviously, but Mercury wasn't in retrograde, so that kind of went out the window. (laughs) So maybe the problem is that we've forgotten how to have a disagreement that doesn't completely divide us. Just because we have a difference in opinions doesn't mean we're so different that we can't have a relationship. I gotta break it to you guys, we're all different. So with that mentality, we're all gonna end up alone. And I get it, for a lot of people, Thanksgiving might be the first time that you're seeing your family since Easter, or maybe even since the year before. So there's a lot of calibration that needs to happen. But Thanksgiving is about being grateful for what you have, not what you don't, which means being grateful for the people in your life and who they are, not what they aren't. Your relationships with people shouldn't be contingent on changing them or changing their minds. Did you know that the origin of the pub was a public house where people came together and discussed politics and religion and money, all of which are now very taboo subjects, especially in a pub? But think about it. Discussions about progress should not be off limits. But then that brings us to the question of how do we argue while coming together instead of falling apart? Our guest is Buster Benson. He's a writer, among other things, but he wrote an article online just for his own interest all about cognitive bias. And to his surprise, it went completely viral. So viral that he got a book deal. So he's going to teach us how to have productive disagreements. Today, we will learn how cognitive bias affects everyone, how to stay confident even when you're put on the spot, and how to diffuse tense moments with a few strategic questions. Real quick, have you signed up for the Morning Mind Love yet? 
Sometimes waking up on the right side of the bed can be a little difficult. The Morning Mind Love delivers short messages to your inbox with a thought or a tip to start each day on a positive note. I get messages from people every single day about how the Morning Mind Love is their favorite way to start the day or that the message that came through is exactly what they needed to hear. Just visit mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Plus, you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do. You'll get a free guided binaural affirmation meditation designed to rewire your brain to your highest self. And you'll get one of my favorite tools, a really cool booklet of power lists to help you gain clarity and live with intention. And it's all completely free. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word morning to 33777. That's morning to 33777. And now let's welcome Buster Benson to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So first off, you've done a lot of research into cognitive bias and arguments. What initially motivated you to dive so deep into this particular topic? That's a good question. I think like many people, you know, we have arguments and disagreements throughout our lives in various contexts. I think I just hit a threshold where I didn't understand why it was so difficult. <laughs> and I just had to figure it out. So rather than you know, I read every single book I could on the subject and then in my own personal career and life, you know, as a husband and parent, I just, you know, needed a little bit more. So this gave me a reason to really dive in and understand the question from multiple angles and make it more practical. Because most of the stuff I read, like it's good when you're like, in sales or if you're you know, on a, in a courtroom, but like, what is the everyday like, what are, what are the tips that work for the everyday person that wants to just, you know, have more pleasant conversations in the world? So that's what really motivated me. What led you up to, and to this point? Were you uh, always a researcher, per se? I am. I mean, I think I've always, you know, been a kind of person that takes a problem and tries to map it out in as much detail as possible to understand it. You know, as a kid, I remember one time trying to write down every single word I knew. And I just, you know, I started, you know, with the obvious ones, you know, but quickly it became very hard to do. And I kept on having to like flip back and like, did I already say goat or not? I don't know. So that was an early example of that. Later on, I like can work at work. I was an early customer support representative at Amazon. And I tried to map out every single possible reason a person would call or write in and then map it to the right response. And like they used this map that I made to help design the customer support software that eventually they used for several years. I just have this tendency to do that. Another example is with cognitive biases, where I recently tried to condense all 180 different cognitive biases into an easier to understand uh, model for why we have them in the first place, what problems they solve, so that I could actually understand it a little bit better. So I do have this tendency to, to try to boil it down everywhere I go. <laughs> right. I read that article. It went pretty viral, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was a lot more popular than I thought it would be. I didn't expect, you know, a million and a half people to read it because it's a 12 minute long read about biases. But, you know, <laughs> I was surprised. Well, it Pleasantly shows surprised. it's it's definitely a much needed topic in this day and age where, you know, it just seems like we're getting more and more divided. So first, I want to just start with the basics. Are arguments really a bad thing or are they productive? They can be both. <laughs> I think as experience can sort of attest, there are plenty of ways for an argument to go wrong and they can oftentimes make things worse. And on the other hand, you know, how can we get anything done if we couldn't, if we can't have productive arguments in some context, right? That's the only way we have of taking 
two perspectives and working through it so that we have alignment on, on some level and can move forward with the solution. So it's crucial for anyone that works in groups, you know, or in a community to be able to have the skill. And we just haven't been taught it specifically. We've picked up little tricks here and there, but we have never really, there aren't that many disciplines that are specifically about how do I do this <laughs> from beginning to end and in a way that I can understand. You actually go as far as to say that the ability to have a productive disagreement is a superpower. Why <laughs> is it so important for us to really learn the skill? Yeah, think about it. Like I think of things like reading and writing as superpowers too. You can sort of imagine how reading and writing are so useful because not only are they useful tools for us to write our own books and read our own books, but we can actually read other people's books and we can write messages to each other and write reviews and we can actually understand and pass on knowledge across generations. And also we can do our diaries and learn about ourselves, all these things. So that sort of creates this like the skill that makes all your other skills better. I think arguing and disagreement is another kind of example of a, a superpower in this way. You can also call it like a meta skill, where by learning to communicate in the context of a disagreement and to more often than not make it productive, every single venue of your life, from your relationships to your work to the way you interact with the television to the way you work, the way you write on Facebook, all these things are either going to be hurt or helped by your ability to disagree productively. I think what goes wrong with a lot of people, at least for me, when I'm going into an argument is having an expectation that I shouldn't have. And that's really actually what I've been drilling down any unhappiness <laughs> that mm -hmm. comes my way mm -hmm. is because of some sort of unmet expectation. What do yeah. you think the most common expectations are when we're going into an argument? Well, I think the most common one is that we think we know what the other person's expectations are. And this leads to a common mistake, which is having a conversation that the other person isn't having, right? So you can imagine, you know, I'm arguing about the best place to go for lunch and you're arguing about, you know, what you can afford or something. I'm arguing about, you know, who the best candidate is according to my own policy preferences and you're arguing for who you think is going to win or like who you think should win. So there's a lot of ways they cope to go into a, an argument or a disagreement and to never actually verify that you're talking about the same thing. And when you think you're both arguing about the same thing and the other person arguments make no sense because they're arguing about something else that's sort of when we end up getting into trouble because then we think, oh, they just don't know what they're talking about because they're not talking in coherent ways with the thing that I want to talk about. And we attribute that to uh, ignorance and sometimes maliciousness when if we actually tried to figure out what they were talking about, we would understand better what they were saying. Yeah, I know for a lot of people, it's common to also think that it's personal in some way or another. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about this one argument that I had with a friend a, a while back, and it, it just reminded me with the words you were saying, where we were both kind of saying to each other, it's not even about that. And and there was a moment where yeah. I, I yeah. sat back and I was like, if I'm saying that what you're saying is not what this is about, and you're saying what I'm saying is not what this is about, then what are we talking about right now? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Yes. That's that's when you ask, what are we talking about? <laughs> uh, another thing that comes up often is that we actually expect to change someone's mind. But you make <laughs> a very compelling case that arguments really never change somebody's mind. Talk more about that. Yeah, I think the easiest way to, to sort of demonstrate this is to think about the last time you changed your mind about something. 
and sort of how that happened. Did someone do it? Or was it a confluence of things that sort of unfolded over time? More often than not, when we change our minds, we do it slowly. I like to use the metaphor of sort of carrying a pile of rocks from one pile to another. So because like our brains are filled with, you know, billions of, of neurons, they're all, you know, connecting up different ideas and sort of thoughts. And to change your mind, you don't just move one neuron from here to there, you have to actually change sometimes your identity and your associations and sort of your, your beliefs about lots of things. And so it takes a while, it takes a while. So when we think about just going in with our, you know, sort of mind changing device, the dropping the information in front of the next person, they absorb it and their mind is instantly changed. We're sort of living in a fantasy world where that kind of thing never happens. You know, very rarely does someone just go from a full 180 on, on something unless they're like on the tipping point. And that sort of speaks to like the long-term nature of, of changing minds. Like you have to be in a relationship with these people um, for a long time and sort of help them sort of develop and, you know, anytime that you change someone else's mind, your mind is going to change a little bit too, because you're now sort of seeing the world through their eyes and there's communication happening. And even if it's only to expand your perspective to include theirs or to include sort of versions of theirs, that's still changing your mind a little bit. And yeah, I think it's it's just another one of those expectations that it's easy to disappoint. Um, if we go in thinking that we're going to snap our fingers and solve, you know, change it, and that doesn't happen over and over again, you know, that can be very frustrating. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family, or you have a work deadline, or something unexpected comes up, and you're all stressed out, and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says. <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small. And when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash MindLove. 
I'm trying to remember the last time I changed my mind on something big, and it was actually in politics. So I consider myself pretty liberal, even though I was raised in a more conservative family. Well, really, since I've been able to vote, the reason that I began to lean liberal was because to me, it seemed in the policies that the liberal standpoint or liberal policies were more likely to extend a helping hand, to make sure everyone was taken care of, to provide a little bit more support. Well, from this viewpoint, the opposite side almost seems like good versus evil. Like, why wouldn't you want to take care of everyone? Why mm -hmm. do you want to hoard the money and be selfish and not provide a little extra helping hand? Well, I was interviewing someone named Grace Silvers back in episode 71, and she has a podcast called Pantsuit Politics, where it's two women, one's liberal, one's conservative. Beth is the conservative one. Well, the episode was all about how to have grace-filled political conversations. So in our conversation, I told her, the thing I don't understand is it seems that the left-leaning policies are based more in love. And that's a value of mine that's really important. So that's why I always steer that direction. And I don't necessarily see how the other side doesn't see that. And her response was, well, I make my voting decisions based on a value of mine that is freedom. Well, I had never really thought about that angle before. So when we went deeper into the conversation, she was just saying how, you know, she believes people should have all of these things that I believed people should have, but she just didn't believe that that should be under the government's control, that maybe we should start up foundations for these things or other solutions that aren't necessarily controlled by the government. Well, when she said that, I actually agree because most of the things that are under the government's control, I don't necessarily agree with where they've taken it or fully trust that it's in my best interest. So whereas before I almost viewed it as good versus evil, if you don't want to help in this way, then you must be selfish. Whereas now I understand it as they are valuing something different or prioritizing something different or seeing information that I don't necessarily see. And doesn't mean we're always going to come to the same conclusion if I did see all that they saw, but I also don't have the same background and past experiences and traumas that this one person has. And I think my mind was changed because she wasn't trying to get me to change my mind. She was just mm -hmm. showing me this other way to look at something that wasn't immediately in my bucket of ways to think about it. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, you didn't change your mind about using love as a good sort of heuristic for just deciding policies, right? Like what you did is you sort of included a new way as well. Like, okay, well, I use this and someone else can use that. And that sort of by having these two different options as possible, rational, sort of totally okay ways of looking at the world, it helped sort of expand the perspective, right? That's a great example of doing that. Exactly. And then it switched me to the full other side because she asked me a question that opened my mind even more where she says, well, how many things is the government in control of that you fully trust? And I was like, oh, my God, basically none. <laughs> like, I'm like this holistic person who doesn't really trust what the doctors tell me anymore and all this stuff. And, right. and so I was like, wow, like that was just this whole blind spot. And now I consider myself kind of in the center with a lot of liberal ideals. So nice. that's another good point about it, though, is it's something I learned when I was in crisis counselor is that you can't just go tell somebody to do something, but you can ask them questions to them to come to their own conclusions, which is the same method that coaches do, really. Mm -hmm. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of therapy as well. Yeah. A lot of it is, you know, your mind has never really changed unless you change it yourself. You can lead a, you can lead someone to a new perspective, but they have to integrate that into their own worldview and no one else can do that for them. And it also helps make it, you know, stick because like, okay, well, this is my choice to do this. And one of the things I try to do in an argument is try to ask questions or get them to ask me questions about myself because that's a sign that there is this two-way sort of curiosity happening. And it's a lot easier to tell someone than it is to get them to ask you a question about something you want to tell them. Another thing I found really surprising was that you say that arguments don't really end. How is that so? (laughs) I did this survey on Facebook early on in the book's research of like, tell me about, you know, these ongoing arguments that, you know, just, you know, that you have, like every relationship has them where like you just have you know, the small sort of pop-ups of these recurring arguments that happen over and over again. Maybe it's about cleanliness or money or whatever, but it's really hard to imagine a world. I mean, we have this expectation again, where arguments do end. Like you can get someone to say, I'm wrong, then they're never going to bring it up again. Well, that's not true. Usually if someone says they're wrong, they're just going to hide it from you from now on because something in them hasn't changed. So I think this is a great way to think of it is arguments aren't about specific statements. They're about worldviews, and worldviews last a long time in people. And it's okay to allow those to develop and sort of pop up again. And a lot of these times, like found, relationships are founded on, on differences of opinion, differences of perspective that you can continue to go to as like these landmarks of your relationship, um, even if you don't agree on them. And so I didn't really make that up. It was just like, you know, the data of arguments is that, you know, you can get someone to say that they are wrong, but you can't get them to really change their mind. Um, therefore, it's going to continue to pop up. A lot of the early questions that sort of caused conflict in our country, sort of in America, have continued to pop up over and over again. That racism is over. Well, actually, it turns out it's not. You know, we think that you know sexism is over. It turns out it's not. Um, there's just more and more of the same problem coming back again. So we should just get seated and sort of expect it to return and sort of think about how we maintain our society and our relationships in the context. We're always going to have differences. We're always going to be seeing things from different perspectives. I loved this one quote that said, every relationship is like a garden and every garden has weeds. Arguments are the little weeds of our relationship that grow up around the things that we intentionally plant. And it stuck out to me because it made me realize that it's most important what we're intentionally planting so that the weeds Mm. don't take over the entire garden. Right. Yeah. And if you just bomb the weeds and you kill the plants that you meant to be there, um, that's not a desirable solution either. So you got to like sort of think of the whole garden as this thing that you have to maintain. Some of them under your control, some of them not. And that's probably more likely to lead to a longer relationship anyway. (laughs) So you say that the easiest thing to do to have more productive disagreements immediately is to pay attention to which of the three realms that you're experiencing. I really loved this method that you use about the head, the heart, and the hands. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, yes. This was one of the last ideas that sort of came about in this book's process, but it ended up being one of the central ones as I continued to rewrite it. The idea is that when disagreement happens, there's three different ways that truth can sort of be validated. Like the way that we resolve a disagreement really depends on what kind of disagreement it is. And that could either be a disagreement about something which I call like the conflict of head, which is information, evidence that can be found out in the world that you can go and say, okay, yeah, the capital of Washington, you know, is Olympia. And now we can sort of move on. But 
not that many arguments are about that. Most arguments are more in the realms of the heart or the hands. The heart is obviously the one where it's about meaning and importance and values and beliefs and things that like we can argue all day about which uh, whether or not spaghetti is better than hamburgers. But, you know, at the end of the day, you can't change my mind. I like hamburgers better. And all the information that you tried out, that's like, well, spaghetti restaurants end up making more money. And, you know, this, this Italian restaurant had the award for the best restaurant. Like All the stuff that you might use to support your side isn't going to change whether or not I, I prefer hamburgers. And that goes for political candidates or for any other choice that we're making in our life about like which policy is, is going to be better, like what, which value is more important to vote for. And so I think that's the heart. It's like these things are about these personal, subjective core values that have formed in us over time. And they really like we really are attached to them. It's part of our identity. And so those are the ones that we can't argue that about those with evidence. And then the last one, hands, is about sort of you know predictions about what is useful, about what is the right thing to do, like what's gonna happen if this happens if, if I do this, how likely is it that we're gonna get into a car accident or if this, you know, if I vote for this person, how likely is it that, that the country is going to get better? Um, those kinds of things that we can't actually go out and find any evidence about them right now. And we also can't really map them back to beliefs because we don't know what's going to happen. And so we have to take some kind of measured um, guess about what is going to happen and sort of wait for the world to actually happen to see what happens. And those kinds of things are the source of a lot of arguments where we can't actually settle whether or not it's better to vote for candidate A or B because there's information that we don't have until it happens. It's funny, you're like, most arguments aren't about what's true because it's easy to find out. I literally dated somebody who had these what's true arguments with me all the time because we'd be uh -huh. in a group of friends. I, mind you, I was on a crap ton of Adderall, so I was like all about <laughs> seeking the truth. I could stop and Google nine different things in one conversation. But uh, <laughs> he would have just blurred out these things that were not true, like things like you do know that George Clooney invented the fig Newton or something like ridiculous. <laughs> that was never one of them. <laughs> but I just be like, um, babe, that's no, good. that's not. Let me Google it. <laughs> and he'd be yeah. like, why do you always have to Google things in front of our friends? <laughs> and I'm like, I mean, isn't this all about seeking the truth? I like didn't understand. But speaking of Google, how do you think that information overload plays a part in the way that we argue? Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I think this is such a crucial one because we are swamped with information and have access to all of this information, but we don't have the time or the energy or the resources to actually dive into it. So there's this gap where we know we have access to everything, but we don't, haven't actually done the work, right? So that's when oftentimes it's like, oh, yeah, there was a study that proved that drinking wine every day is really good for you. So therefore, you know, I'm not an alcoholic, whatever. But what we can't really do is actually go out and read every single study that's ever been published about every single topic and have it in, at hand when we are in an argument. So we have to sort of let go oftentimes of this need to pull in evidence. Sometimes you can ask a question and be like, I wonder if it's true that you know wine is good for you. And then you can use that as a way to divert the conversation. But it's a bad habit, I would say, to cite studies that you just barely remember hearing about that happen to support your argument in the moment. Because, yeah, it's almost always our memories are just not that good. True. And that actually brings us to cognitive bias, because it's one of those things where we're going to seek the information and remember the information that fits into the beliefs that we already have. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, as soon as a conversation moves into the, call it the, the battle mode of like, OK, well, now we're fighting about this. 
your brain is really good at shifting gears and becoming like this best friend of pulling all the random information that you may have, that might be useful that you can use as a weapon against their side. Um, and not only that, if you haven't been clear about what the argument is actually about, you're also just going to roll in new ar past arguments that you know you think you have a better chance of winning, or just by sheer volume of them saying like, "Oh, well, you're also bad at this, and you're also bad at this. This is another time you were wrong." As ways to sort of like buffet your side, and yeah, those kinds of things are hard to avoid once you're in that mode. So trying to avoid that mode is really the only strategy there. Yeah, I really, really lived by that wine is really good for you thing <laughs> <laughs> for quite some time. And then I actually did research it and I was like, okay, let me see if I can prove this wrong because it's really too good to be true. And I was probably like three glasses deep at that point. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is not exactly true. Turns out, actually, from what I found that one glass of wine is good for you, but it actually has no effect on vegans, which is a real shame for me because <laughs> it thins the blood a little bit. So it can actually thin your artery or unclog your arteries just a little bit. If you have one glass, anything over that is starts to become detrimental. And again, there's no change in vegans. I was like, I'm just going to act like I never read this study. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're very good at filtering out the those kinds of studies that aren't actually helping our argument. <laughs> like my aunt who then was like, you know, I read this article that kale isn't actually good for you at all. <laughs> like, You read the headline, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's another thing. Even if you do read the article, oftentimes the article is already um, wrapped in several layers of bias and motivated reasoning. Like, what is the purpose of this article to be published by this publication? And what are the ends that it's trying to meet? Oftentimes, if you just look at the real studies that are behind the articles, they're a lot less uh, conclusive than the, the articles about them. So like, there's all these layers of like different people adding their little you know, motivated agenda to things until it finally gets to us and it's perfectly packaged for us because that's what it was designed for. And we love it. And we're like, all right, Great. I feel validated yet again. And I'm glad I'm reading this, this article. I'm going to pass it to all my friends. Well, one of the best ways to start to have more productive disagreements is to actually turn inward and start to examine our own anxieties over past experiences that might make us more emotional about certain topics. So it's basically saying that we need to figure out what our triggers are. How do we go about doing this? And where do these anxieties even come from? I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between 
all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We need to figure out what our triggers are. How do we go about doing this? And where do these anxieties even come from? <laughs> Everywhere. The practice that I used to really dig into this is a daily like private journaling practice. Like morning pages is sort of a, a habit that's, you know, like just brain dump your thoughts and sort of just explore what's going on uh, without any filter, because that's a great time to really tease apart some of these past anxiety. Like what was a hard moment I had yesterday? Let's tease it apart. What was the first thing I said? What was I actually anxious about? What was that threatening to me? Um, how did I respond? How did they respond on and sort of like unpack it in slow motion? And, and there's no, in that context, there's no motivation to like, you know, jump to the next best thing to say after that. And you can sort of see it in, its, in a better light. And then if you do that enough, you'll find that like, as you're having another argument during the day, like, oh, I'm gonna have to write about this tomorrow, crap. And then you'll be like, oh, wait, I'm now in the moment that I can influence what I write about tomorrow. And so let's step back a little bit and think about the same things I would ask myself tomorrow, which are like, what actually sparked my anxiety? What value feels threatened? And let's double check and see if that value is what they intend to threaten with the statement or, or things like that, where you can start to be less reactive and really zero in on the, the nugget that is triggering you a little bit and see and validate at that point. Like, okay, is this argument, are you trying to say that marginalized people should not be helped, you know, or are you trying to say that it's okay that kids are dying in schools, you know, these kinds of things where if you isolate it, what's actually bothering you, you often will say a ridiculous thing that the other person will say, well, no, I'm not saying that. And you can avoid thinking that they do. Do you have an example of when a past anxiety, whether it's yours or something that you found through experiments in your book that do make people more emotional about a specific topic or where a basically a past or a held belief is affecting their decisions today? Oh, let's see. A common one that happens is this thing that I sort of think of as guilty by association, where we imagine a group of people to have some kind of ill intent towards us or our valued community. And so anything that resembles something that that group would do becomes representative of all the things that group does. For example, like if you say like, I think Trump supporters are racist, and then you see someone wearing a red manga hat, you suddenly say like, okay, well, that person is a Trump supporter, therefore he's racist, therefore he endorses hurting people, and he's responsible for, for murder and all these things. When you've jumped to all those conclusions in your head, and you haven't actually witnessed anything that that person actually has committed directly. Um, it's all association. It's all sort of imagined. And that's something that we do a lot. We have these labels where we think that, oh, wait, any hint that this person is on the wrong tribe is going to then make them guilty of all the sins of that tribe. It's so interesting because we like to place a lot of blame on full tribes, but we aren't even aware of how influenced we are by our own tribe. <laughs> if I wasn't in this bubble in Santa Monica, who knows if I would be saging my house at night? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we don't know. So another 
tip to having these more productive disagreements is to increase your tolerance for uncertainties, delayed resolutions, and uncomfortable conversations, which basically is like saying increase your tolerance for conflict, really. But how? <laughs> I am pretty uncomfortable at unresolved things in general. Like my mind just wants yeah. to fix things. I'll, I'll sit there mm -hmm. and think about it. And I'm like, how do I go fix that? I'll just go and take the blame, even if I do not feel like <laughs> I'm, I'm to blame, just so it'll be resolved. Do you have any tips yeah. for that? Yeah. I mean, this is sort of why I, I really focus on the art of it and sort of the habit sort of angle here, because one of the hardest ideas to internalize is this idea that complexity and ambiguity is going to make us less anxious. <laughs> That's really hard to imagine. We, we usually go through life and we're like, okay, this person's wrong. That person's wrong. I'm right. Okay, cool. Everything makes sense. Let's go forward. Despite the fact that I had to fight all of those people along the way versus like, okay, well, what if I had to stop it every single time someone said something and ask them a question about how they came to that belief? You know, that sounds exhausting. I don't have enough time for that. So that is the conflict that I definitely feel like that is a fair sort of fear that you might you know, have going into this kind of new world. In practice, though, I have found that there's this part of us that often feels called to disagree with people. You know, that, that cartoon, I don't know if you've seen the cartoon, it's like, someone's wrong on the internet, I must go get, you know, correct them. We have that duty. We feel like we have to represent truth and justice, you know, to the random people on the internet um, all the time. If your mindset is not, oh, they, it's not, they're wrong, but wow, I don't understand how they think. Is it important enough for me to understand how they think? If not, I'm just going to let it sit there. If it is, I'm going to ask them some questions. Nine out of 10 times, you can still be like, I don't understand where they're coming from. And I don't have the time to go find out right now, but I'm not going to get angry about it. One out of 10 times, you might say, okay, I don't understand where they're coming from. And actually right now I have a good opportunity to find out what is going on there. Let's go ask them some questions. Um, let's go try to understand that perspective. And that sort of, that can lead to a great conversation. But in the meantime, you've avoided nine, you know, angry, angry ones. So I think if you can sort of practice this to the extent that you feel like there isn't anything inherently wrong with disagreement. And each of these disagreements is an opportunity to understand someone's perspective and you don't have to be the sole person, you know, bopping everyone over the head that's wrong, then overall, the net effect is that you're less anxious. You actually have more time to yourself. You don't have to be reactive to everything and a little bit more calm um, results. And so that's how I felt myself. And it's definitely been a road. <laughs> so there's ups and downs, but I think that is the call, I guess, to adventure on that topic. For me, it's been so helpful to learn how to change my initial reaction. And there's been so many instances of so many parts of my life where I realized my initial behavior is not my ideal behavior. And one of mm -hmm. those is just kind of pouncing with what I see as the truth. So it's such a great practice to switch your first reaction from being like, well, let me tell this person how it really is to let me ask to see where this person's coming from and ask questions because even just in that process, even if there's no resolution that comes from it, you're going to humanize them. Because I find right. that even if you're getting in an argument with your mother, <laughs> with your grandma, mm -hmm. if her mm -hmm. view is opposing enough, you start to dwindle them down to mm -hmm. just this idea instead of like the person who 
taught you to tie your shoes and to like cleaned up your shit when you were young. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I think that the thing that's happening when we don't, when we argue with people that aren't really people that we might ever see again, is that we don't build up that sort of social trust amongst them where you think that, okay, well, this time they were acting like a jerk, but last time they were really nice to me. And next time they might be a jerk again. And overall it nets out as a, as a positive sum. But when we see someone, a stranger on the internet and we just argue with them, or you know, a friend of a friend, we might be like, "This is my one interaction with them. I'm writing them off. I'm never seeing them again." And you just want it to be over. And yeah, rehumanizing people is the thing that we need to be doing more. And that's what we need to practice because even the most, you know, we all know that we have crazy relatives and crazy friends that have terrible beliefs and stuff. But we also know that they're complicated, rich people that have their own stories, that have their own hardships, that have their own challenges, and we can sort of weigh those in context and see them as a human still. And that's a lot harder to do when it's just an avatar on the internet or on the TV. And so that's the hard part. That's how technology has sort of made it harder on us to animate all of these people. There's so many more people now that we have to do this for. And yeah, once we've dehumanized someone, that's we've sort of demoted them in a way that I don't think anyone would endorse. That's what leads to the worst kinds of discrimination and hate our civilization has ever experienced. Right. And I am hearing so many stories about families even being broken up because of what happened in our most recent election or what's happening in the government. And it's like, no, like (laughs) we should all be banding together regardless of what our beliefs are. Everything's just so complicated and there's so much technology at us. Like what usually happiness is drilled down to is connection. And if you're only connecting with the people that are just like you, you're never going to have anyone to challenge or inspire you to grow or basically become anything more than who you are right now. Right. I remember being really young and I wish I could remember what exactly triggered this belief. But I remember finding a pattern that the least open-minded people that I knew also got out the least. Maybe they never left their town or they never traveled. And after the pattern was spotted, I decided that I wasn't going to be that way. And open-mindedness just became really, really important to me. Right. And so now, if I feel too strongly about a certain opinion, my first thought now is to actually Google the opposing side or talk to somebody, which is way better than Googling the opposing side, that that has a different (laughs) view and, and see where it really comes from. Because we tend to think that the other side is evil when that's almost never the case. I'm going to say almost because I never want to rule that out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people can be driven to evil through conflict, right? If you push someone far enough, they're going to become evil. And also you're going to become evil by, you know, attacking them so that you can push it to that point. But in the earlier stages, hopefully we can catch people more often. One of the tips I love to suggest to people when they're labeling the other opposing side in like a large group label, like, you know, liberals or you know Republicans or Trump supporters or whoever it happens to be. And they're like, they think this and they did this and like, they have no remorse. And so you're attributing, you're projecting a lot of intentions and thoughts onto them. One easy thing to do, not easy necessarily, but like one actionable thing to do is to go find someone that can represent that group and bring them into your conversation and ask them questions and ask them if what they think and what you know their peers think and see if it matches up with what you think they think. Because that's almost 100% of the time going to turn out to be that you projecting something much less charitable onto them than they would tell you if, you, if they are there in front of you. 
that other added benefit of you know you actually going out and talking to people instead of just screaming at a, a cloud of people that can never reply to you. Well, this actually leads perfectly into the next tip of cultivating a neutral space where someone actually feels free and welcome to disagree with you. Because none of these tips will really work if you go in and you're like, hey, you disagree with me and I think it's pretty stupid. So talk to me and spill <laughs> everything that <you're, laughs> you really yeah. believe. How do you go about creating that welcoming space? Yeah, that's um, a good question because it's not easy. So one of the things that we expect from our online spaces and our even in our real life spaces is that a lot of them are just temporary. Like they, they pop up and they disappear. Sometimes you can sort of think of Facebook or Twitter you know, as spaces, but you can never go back into the same room. Like every time you dip your toes, you're sort of in this whole different crowd. So I think a lot about, you know, a space requires three things. It requires a table of some sort, like it could be a metaphorical table of like of ideas where you see people can come in and put ideas on the table. Those ideas can disagree with one another and anyone's welcome to bring ideas to the table and see them and sort of talk about them before you judge them and before you evaluate them and also before you have to feel like you endorse them. The second level is people. So people should be able to join and leave the table at will as well. Like if someone is forced to be there and you know they don't want to be there, then it's not going to lead to a productive or neutral space. It's clear that in a lot of our natural environments are like this. Like, you know, if you think about the place of work, if you're arguing with your boss, and you know, like you're supposed to be there, they can kick you out, but they can't kick you out without putting you in danger of your livelihood. So you're sort of forced to comply on, on some level, but maybe after work or you know on the weekends, you can talk to them in a different context that feels like, okay, I don't have to invite them to my barbecue, but I'm going to, and they don't have to come to my barbecue, but they, they might. So having the ability to leave and join in the moment of like, make sure that people are there of their own will and not, they don't feel forced there. And if because if they feel forced there, they're going to sort of enact a different power dynamic, I guess. And they might just be there to like, you know, slap things or flip tables. And the third thing is sort of the cultural element of letting arguments live in the space for a long time, like from birth to death. I sort of think of these discussions as they could last years, they can turn into a um, culture of sorts, like where we believe these things together, we sort of have this richness that sort of lasts longer than any of us, any one argument or any one person that's here or any one idea that we have. And those spaces, if you have all those things, you could have like, that's what the ideal perhaps was of church or the town square or the family dinner table, where like these things sort of become alive and thriving in a sense. And, and I think that's the environment where productive disagreements can happen the best. But yeah, it, they're hard to, to form, but you also know when they're not happening. And you can sort of say like, okay, well, everyone I talk to here is here for a minute, shouts at me and leaves. That's not going to ever become a neutral environment. Or I'm forcing my opinion on my employees and direct reports. Like that's also not a neutral environment. And you can sort of spot the things that we tend to only look at the content of a conversation and not the space that it's happening in. Because sometimes the disagreement is a result of something in the environment that's off where a dynamic is happening that makes it unhealthy by by default. Lately, I've been trying to pretend that when I'm in a, in a situation that there is a heated discussion popping up, which can happen quite often in my uh, family gatherings, <laughs> but yeah. I will try to put myself into the mindset that this is all a game. Like it's like the Sims or something yeah. like that. And there's literally uh -huh. nothing that's going to happen from the outcome of it so that it's totally fine. The side that I don't agree with at all can 
win the argument and convince everyone in the room and nothing bad's going to happen because I feel like that's the real fear when we think mm-hmm. that we can't change somebody's mind or we're we're not getting our point across is that we don't even realize this but it's that okay well if I can't convince this person then all of a sudden this misinformation is going to spread and this is what the world's right. going to be like like I got that all the time when I was first going vegan when you're making a life change like going vegan I was in the first year very passionate about it so I was learning stuff that I would learn and be like that totally changes my whole life and so it was hard for me to explain things to people and not see them have the same light bulb that I did. I just didn't understand. And so I'm like, no, but you don't understand. And then most of the time, the whole room would be like, no, I'm not giving up meat and hand me the steak. And I'd be like, oh my God, like think like we're all going to die. Like that's like what the internal reaction is when really it's like, no, everything's going to be exactly the same as it was yesterday, Melissa. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think thinking like a game is really healthy because in a game, there's sort of this temporary space you know you can sort of think of it as a small system where you know there's rules there's etiquette there's sort of participants things that are going to happen but it's sort of monopoly money and you can sort of choose to play a game uh, and just like kill everyone on the board and just like make them hate you know ever playing with you again or you could play in a way that makes sure that they want to play again that's the kind of thing where minds can actually change over time and that space can sort of develop but yeah i think thinking of helping to think about it as a game helps a lot because we understand that context a lot better than most. And it, it's also meant to be fun. And hopefully you can bring some enjoyment to that too. Yeah. And then realizing too, that when people are fighting against you, just like I was probably the annoying, hyper-passionate vegan for a hot minute there. But like, <laughs> I wasn't trying to go in and tell everyone their lives were bad or they were doing something evil. Like I said, for me, something about the information triggered an entire behavioral change. So at first I was so passionate about it that I was literally changing my whole life around. Like what you eat is a really big change. So to expect somebody not to be passionate when they're living their lives in a specific way. And this goes with politics too. It's like, these are the beliefs that have created my reality. And so when you go to change that, or you try to change that, or you somehow, make them think that that's being challenged, they might have a passionate response and don't take that so personally. It's just, that's what their whole life is wrapped around in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually a great moment to ask really good questions because, you know, I think on a level you're processing what's happening to yourself in that moment. That's something that other people want to transform their lives in various ways. Maybe it's toward veganism, maybe it's about something else. But either way, it's really interesting to watch people going through that kind of shift. So if you know, anyone there could have asked, like, okay, well, tell, tell me, like, how this, what sparked this? Like, what kind of things are hard? What kind of things are easy? What do you think? You know, how's it going to help you? All these ways to connect. And then vice versa, you could ask, like, what do you think would happen if you became vegan? Or like, imagine that you had to become vegan. What kind of things would you have to give up that you would really miss? You, know, you could sort of turn it into a conversation piece um, without actually challenging people's identities directly. Those are the things that are going to spark the most anxiety. There's plenty more to learn about us that you know is around us, the periphery. Right. And at the end of the day, not everyone's going to agree with you. That's one of the tips is just accepting that not everyone <laughs> yeah. is going to agree with you. And the more that you can take these moments of seeing where you're triggered, when you're triggered, when these moments of conflict come up, how you react, these are all basically reflections of 
a world full of differences. And the more that we can be okay with those differences and actually embrace them and love them and see the value in all the differences, the happier we're going to be in general and the more we're going to spur our own growth. So thank you so much for sharing all of this wisdom and for taking the time to do all this research to help make the world a little bit of a friendlier place. So for the listeners that are really resonating with this and want to learn some of the tips that we didn't even have time to get to, where's the best place for them to connect with you? BusterBenson.com will have all the information about the book and I'm at Buster on Twitter as well. And always, I always love a good question or a good topic to discuss. So feel free to reach out to me. The show notes for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 106. So all the links to Buster's books, anything we talked about, and of course, my amazing sponsors and discounted goodies for you guys. So I get that it's so easy to just notice how we're all different, but I hope you all know that when it comes down to the last of our days, most people are most proud of their relationships. We find comfort in each other. Connection is one of the biggest keys to happiness. The thing about the internet is it really allows us to tribe up. You know, you can find a pocket of people who have very similar beliefs to yours. But a lot of times we're diving so deep into these pockets of similar people that we forget how to connect with people that don't fit into that one little click. And what that causes is it causes us to focus on how we're all different more than how we're the same. And then those differences divide us. But reading books and taking courses on happiness, one of the primary things in it is gratitude for what we have, not what we don't. Which, like I said in the beginning of this episode, means accepting people as they are, not accepting people once they change into who we want them to be. And yes, sometimes their beliefs might sound totally wrong or immoral, but just understand that people are coming from a lifetime of different experiences and beliefs, and they might just be seeing it a little bit differently than you did. And something else happens when we get too formed into a pocket of one type of people. We tend to get locked into groupthink, which means that say you're hanging out with a bunch of people who like yoga and matcha lattes and puppies. I'm basically listing off things that I love. Well, suddenly if one person were to really start disliking the color red, chances are a lot of the other peoples in the group are going to dislike the color red as well, just because they think that's what somebody like them should do. This recently happened to me, so I have a confession to make. I started getting Botox when I was like 27 years old. I live in LA, a lot of my friends were doing it. So when I started to go more holistic, I changed a lot of my lifestyle. I even stopped dyeing my hair. I just wanted to fall in love with my natural beauty again. So I did, and I loved it. But here's the confession part. I really missed the Botox. (laughs) And I felt like somebody like me shouldn't want to get Botox. I don't know, all this stuff. Well, then I just decided to get it done to make myself happy. I'm speaking on stages. I'm doing video. I don't know. It just made me feel good. And honestly, after I got it done again, I really liked it. So I get that there might be people out there that are judging me, but I also don't like when people are pretending they're not getting something like Botox and then going on social media and pretending to have perfect skin with no flaws at age 34, 35 or whatever. So yeah, I went to Laser Away, they gave me a mimosa, I got Botox, and I loved it. 
I felt like I had a little extra swagger in my step walking onto that stage. And you know what I feel good about? I didn't need it. I know that. I was totally fine without it. And once I trusted that and was able to come from that place, it felt better just wanting it this time. But my point is, it doesn't really matter what other people think. If you're firm in your own beliefs, what makes you happy, what you want to do, the more that you know that that's coming from who you are rather than who other people are, the easier it is to accept other people's differing opinions, differing lifestyles. And the reason for that is because when you are firm about who you are, somebody else disagreeing doesn't threaten your identity. You easily understand that them holding a different opinion doesn't take anything away from you, which means less fight or flight response and a sense of calm when you're actually talking to other people. And you know that your value comes from something so much bigger than just what you know or even how you live. And thank you all for loving and accepting me for the value I try to bring and not expecting me to be perfect. I still drink wine and get Botox and watch The Bachelorette. So <laughs> that's me. And I promise to love you for you. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today. And I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 